Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Laura Shearsmith and I'm studying the Global Challenges degree programme at Brunel University. So COP26, the Climate Change Conference, is currently happening in Glasgow and today's day one and the subject is finance. So I'm going to be chatting with Dr Sven Fisher about finance. So can you tell us why you think that the market is going to be useful in addressing climate change and in particular in reducing CO2 emissions? That's a very good question. And as an economist, I strongly believe in markets. Let me maybe give an example where markets have been used successfully in order to reduce emissions. So often an example which is being used is the cap and trade, which was introduced in the fight against acid rain. So in the early 70s already, there were strong scientific indications that sulfuric oxide and nitrogen oxide emissions increase the acidity in the rain, resulting in deforestation and dying trees and dying forests. And one policy response, especially in the US, was to introduce the cap and trade model. Cap and trade model is an idea that you reduce the quantity of emissions by forcing firms who make these emissions to buy the right certificate which allows them to produce a certain amount of emissions. That's the fundamental idea. You have to pay for this right. And by reducing the allowances in circulation, you manage to reduce the overall emissions. Now, the advantage of such an approach in theory, if it works, is that those firms who have the highest incentives to invest in savings, for whom it is the cheapest to invest in savings, they are the ones who are going to do that. Those for whom it is too expensive to save emissions, those are basically going to pay for the emission certificate. This means we are going to have a system which in the end is going to be the cheapest way of reducing emissions. Because those for whom it is the cheapest to reduce emissions are going to do it. This is the fundamental idea behind this market approach. The other fundamental idea is that via these certificates, which you have to pay for if you make these emissions, and which end up basically if you make only little emissions, so if you save emissions, if you have only a low number of emissions, you're able to sell your, your rights to others and you make money out of it. So the money ends up in the hands of those who also have the highest incentives to reduce emissions. So there are two channels here. One is we reduce the costs, we minimize the costs in order to reduce the emissions. And the other is we give as much funds as possible to those who have the highest incentives to reduce emissions. So this makes this market approach very ideal, at least in a theoretical world. Now, when it comes to applying this to CO2 emissions, and in general to greenhouse gas emissions, which of course are not only CO2, we also need to look at the question of why it worked in this environment. So in this case, in the case of the acid rain, it worked because the relevant emissions have a very localized impact. It might impact the rain in a radius of 200 miles, 400 miles maybe, but it's not a global impact. This means in tackling this issue, it was only one or two few jurisdictions or nations being involved in it. So you did not have to find an agreement, for example, what are the initial emission rights? How do we distribute the initial emission rights? And there wasn't a major question about enforcing it because it was only within one country or maybe two countries where these trading systems were initially enforced. They are now actually enforced worldwide, but only amongst certain groups of countries, of course. The other reason why this probably worked was that also from a political perspective, the linkage was much easier to sell, which brings us to the world of political economy, of 
politicians who are interested in being re-elected and bureaucrats who are to some extent self-serving. So basically translating this system to a global scale, which for CO2 emissions or greenhouse gas emissions in general would be necessary, makes it much more complex. We have pretty much every country in the world involved in it. We have a question, how do you distribute the initial emission rights? Do you base it on how much a country or individual firms are emitting at the moment? Are you going to base it on the idea of historical responsibility? Basically, how many greenhouse gas emissions already came from different countries? Or do you base it on the idea that per capita in the world, every person kind of is supposed to have a right to make a certain number of greenhouse gas emissions? And then this is the basis by which we distribute. But then, of course, there's the question of enforceability. Are the institutions good enough in every country in the world in order to enforce these emission trading systems appropriately? so that they actually work. You get in all kinds of problems with the idea of this, what many economists would consider the first best solution, uh, the solution of emission trading rights. You run into a lot of problems once you want to um, apply this to the worldwide problem of um, greenhouse gas emissions. It feels as if every country was all regulating it differently, that it might be difficult to actually see the impacts quite quickly, because if everyone's sort of regulating it differently, there's going to be no consistency across the world. Yes, yeah, very good. You're, you're actually referring to the issue that with climate change, of course, there's also this intertemporal component. So with acid rain, the success of the intervention was fairly quickly obvious uh, because you could measure the sulfur dioxide emissions and you could measure the nitrogen oxide emission and you could quickly see that the acidity of the rain went down, it became less acidic, and you, you could see the, the benefits this had on forests. With the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, this is going to be a much more long-term process, and seeing the benefits of any policy intervention will take a lot of time. Which also then brings us to the political economy problem. What I forgot to mention with this first best solution, we have another problem, which is it is difficult to sell the electorate with linkage between reducing emission rights and the idea that this is actually going to be enforced, that this is actually going to have actual impact. Also because it takes a long time. Coming from someone who's more of like an environmental perspective than like economy, so it seems to me like there should be different solutions. I feel like we don't have enough time to sort of think it might have effects in the future. I sort of feel like we need to be doing things now. I think that's because I come from, like I don't come from like say like an economics background, like a finance background. I just sort of see like the urgency coming from like an environmental background. Uh, yes, I mean, um, as I mentioned, this is the first best solution economists want if it was possible. So the second best solution economists like is the idea of emission taxation. It's a route which has been taken much more across the world. Examples of this actually in the UK are fuel tax which is essentially a hydrocarbon oil tax. So of all the environmental taxes in the UK, the fuel tax covers about 60% of all the returns. And if you look historically, the fuel tax in real purchasing power measurements has been pretty much constant. If not, actually, it has become cheaper. The urgency has been known for quite some time, but due to what I would call political economics, what you would probably call politics, very little had been done because 
clearly once you introduce taxes and you increase taxes, people don't like to pay taxes. And just the news right now that fuels prices are going to go up make many people very wary. But this, of course, would be a consequence. So if you want to reduce CO2 emissions, another way of doing that than the, than the quantity approach I mentioned before about the emission rights trading system, the other approach is basically you increase the price for making these emissions. But if you do that, then people directly feel the consequences of it. And of course, the idea is you increase the price for it so that people have an incentive to reduce emissions, to buy cars which are more fuel efficient, to insulate their homes so that they don't need to use as much uh, gas to fuel their heating and so forth. This is the fundamental mechanism. But if you do that, then of course, uh, you increase prices for consumers and this is what people don't like. And then of course, the problem is fuel taxes disproportionately affect those who are the poorest. So increasing taxes on fuel, of course, are going to affect those most who hardly can afford to heat their homes already, uh, which makes them even more unpopular. So how effective do you think a carbon tax would be? Because there's already a lot of issues with taxes and sort of tax havens and like massive companies not paying the taxes or not paying like the fair share of taxes. So coming from like a climate justice perspective, increasing tax would, as you said, like just target say like working class people rather than the biggest emitters. So the majority of these environmental taxes actually in the system it is set up at, at the moment, the majority of these taxes come from private households. Because in order to improve the competitiveness of local industries, there's reluctance across the globe to lay these taxes on the industries. I'm an economist. I'm not trying to make these judgmental statements. I'm trying to analyze why things are happening the way they are. And clearly, if you have part of your economy is an industry, so for example, your Germany and a big part of your industry is the, the car industry, then of course, it is difficult to levy taxes on the industry because this will make you less competitive to, for example, Japan, which, for example, might not levy similar taxes. So the fundamental problem about any environmental issue is that the environment, clean air or basically having a, a livable climate nowadays is similar to what we call a so-called common pool resource problem. A simplified example I always give in my lectures is that of a village which shares a pond with fish in it. Once too, too much fish is being fished out of the pond, nothing is going to be left for anyone. So the village needs to find a way to police how much every villager is allowed to take out of the pond in order to sustain uh, the number of fish in the pond. The problem being that every individual has the incentive to take out as much fish as possible because if they don't do it, someone else is going to do it. Now the question is, how do you coordinate everyone so that they manage only to take as much fish out of the pond that it be, remains sustainable? And this is a very similar problem we are facing with climate change, with greenhouse gas emissions. Every country has the incentive to hope that every other country is going to solve this problem. And you will hear often the argument, yes, but the UK only contributes 4% to all greenhouse gas emissions in the world. That's a valid argument. But the point, of course, the problem is if everyone says that, even the US could say we only contribute, I don't know what the exact number is, I'm making this number up, only 17%, which sounds like very little, but considering the population size, of course, it's a lot. This argument, argument is actually true, but that's actually the fundamental problem about this entire thing, that everyone has an incentive to hope that everyone else is going to solve the problem. 
you say that the economy has been very effective over the last 150 years but in terms of like economic growth obviously we've sort of that's kind of led us to climate change yes. and like ecological breakdown I mean, we've like surpassed us to the to the abyss um so, so would you argue that it is a successful then or not capitalist societies have been extremely have been extremely successful China had been extremely successful by incorporating capitalistic ideas into their system and a market approach. And in doing so, they've elevated hundred millions of people uh, out of poverty with improved health outcomes, improved livelihoods. And this is something we need to recognize. So our mixed economies actually have been successful in bringing the world forward, but at the same time, it's bringing us ever closer to the abyss. Now, the question is, how do we need to reform our systems in order to account for these problems we are now facing. How do we in general solve this problem, this common pool resource problem? How do we manage to internalize costs of pollution, for example? And of course, this does not only apply to CO2 emissions. Coming back to the cap and trade idea, it might be simple to, for example, introduce something like that to fossil fuels. That basically, whenever you consume fossil fuels, you have to pay for the right to create the CO2 emissions, which are associated with burning this amount of fuel. That would be straightforward. But clearly, this is not the only source of climate change. We have the methane emissions in the cattle industry. We have a deforestation problem. We have a problem of um, the destruction of moors, which are very important CO2 sinks. So we have all these other problems, which are also related to climate change. So it's not just uh, CO2 emissions. So with CO2 emissions, we might be able to find a way to use a cap and trade system, a system of emission rights or a taxation system to do that. But how do we do it with all these other problems? And I think actually this is a fundamental question of how we are able to reform our economic system, which has been very successful. The life expectancy has increased. We had huge technological progress. Um, everyday life has become easier and simpler for people. Essentially, what I argue is we have been very successful, but at the same time, we've created these problems. And now the point is what we need to try to do is to separate economic growth from resource consumption. Historically, it is correct that economic growth has been linked with an exponential consumption of resources. And the Club of Rome has warned about this, the fundamental problems linked to that since the early 1980s. And they, they are right. If no way can be found to decouple economic growth from the overuse of resources, then the earth faces a fundamental problem. There have always been economists who say this will be solved by itself due to technological innovation. So far that hasn't happened. So far we haven't seen a decoupling of the consumption of resources from economic growth. But at least theoretically, there's no reason why this shouldn't be possible. Growth does not necessarily require an increase in resource consumption. Having like a service-based economy rather than resource consumption. Yes, of course, partly a service-based economy, but you could also think basically about finding way to recycle resources which have already been used, finding other technologies which require fewer resources, maybe also creating incentives or to re-naturalize. For example, recreating biodiversity or creating for example, CO2 sinks in order to offset historical CO2 emissions. You suggested the point about reducing consumption. Yeah, the idea um, of like degrowth. 
it wouldn't matter whether we would introduce something like a quantity-based emission reduction system such as cap and trade or a price-based mechanism such as emission taxation in the short run due to increasing costs of consumption. This will reduce consumption. And this is one of the reasons, of course, why many people are opposed to it, because it affects their ability con to consume. The argument, however, is in the longer run, this will create incentives for industries to become less resource intensive, to reduce the consumption of resources, to reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions in their production. Thank you for talking with today. It's been really interesting. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, I understand that probably as an economist, I have a perspective on this, which is very different to a majority view. Mm -hmm.